Hello, friends. We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And uh, for the very first time, I think, in the history of Hit Factory podcast, uh, we are coming at you from two separate locations. We are recording remotely from different venues. It's just us today. This is wild. This is a weird, weird sensation talking to you (laughs) through a computer screen. I know. It's so awkward. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Do I sound distant? Hello, 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 hello. You're not echoing or anything, if that's what you're asking. No, I'm good. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about yet another film uh, that you, the listeners, have chosen for us. We did another poll via Patreon, and uh, this time the category was early 90s Jeff Bridges. What a category. What a category. (laughs) For a minute there, I thought uh, that that some different movies were going to win. I thought maybe Fearless would be like the the runaway kind of choice for a lot of people, just knowing Mm. how many folks like that one. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was another one, um, I, which the, the name escapes me already. The one with, uh, Tommy Lee Jones in it blown away. Oh, blown away. It. Yeah. And, uh, that one for a minute too, was like running away with it. But of course, uh, the, the Gilliam heads came out in force. I have a feeling, even though it's harder to tell and he didn't, uh, go about manipulating the poll in the same conventional way that he has in the past but i i i feel like bill ryan has something to do with us doing this one again (laughs) i was gonna ask if bill had any uh any powerful influence on this particular poll i i like haven't been uh online tracking what's been going on so i just assumed that this was bill's doing (laughs) we got you know in the final count we got significantly less votes than we do uh, on twitter.com you know there's there's one more you know sort of barrier for entry one more level down that people have to go when they click through to patreon to vote right which makes sense you know it's not as easy as just like scrolling and boop, you know placing a vote like that but that also means that bill ryan can't influence it as readily um <laughs> which he remarked upon <laughs> in a dm oh, to me he? yes he was like are you doing this um because i i keep uh, swaying the vote because I, I keep I keep deciding what you all are going to watch. Um, no, that's not what happened this time. But I but he uh, I know is a big Gilliam fan, and uh, and so am I. So I'm I'm happy that we are talking about this one today. It is uh, Terry Gilliam's 1991 feature, The Fisher King, of course, with Jeff Bridges, also starring Robin Williams. But I, you know, I will say that I would have guessed that our first Terry Gilliam movie would have been 12 monkeys on this show because that's a that's one that you know that I I love quite a bit Carly. It's a it's a good movie. It's not my yeah. favorite of his, but it's definitely prescient and has some like important themes as do most of his movies, I think. It may have been a good one to do because of uh the the sad news about uh Bruce Willis lately, but I we didn't want this one to be a sad one. We wanted this one to be an uplifting one. And this movie, I think for some of its melancholy for some of its gravitas really is like, just like one of those triumph of the human spirit kind of movies in, in the the least pejorative way imaginable. I think this movie is lovely. It's incredibly generous and empathetic and vividly rendered. I had never seen it before. 
and I I really really loved it. I did too. I think that in the hands of basically any other director, the sort of like highs and lows of the narrative would have been completely pejorative and like way too canned. And I didn't feel that way at all. Like I was so like here for all of the like fantasy and the romance and the heartbreak, like it just all worked for me. And it always felt sort of balanced and tethered to like a worldview that I could align with and not just feel completely sort of like out into the ether. Um, But I also think the writing is like what makes this movie so tactile. And I, I was like furiously writing quotes verbatim down in my notes, like every two minutes. Yeah. You know, Gilliam is such a like vivid and, distinct stylist in his movies like as soon as you see a couple of these like canted angles and some like the fisheye lens stuff and like the point of view shots like you know right away what you're looking at it just feels like all those other movies but it's also an interesting kind of story for him to take on it's much more a much more naturalistic kind of story than we're used to seeing from him and the movie like in general feels like kind of like a transitional work for him in the best way possible. Like, you know, for, if we're getting into it, Terry Gilliam obviously gets his start uh, working as sort of like the in-house director for Monty Python, the great British comedy troupe Uh, does Holy Grail as like his sort of big breakout Uh, and then spends the next like 15 years doing some variations of these kind of fantastical, silly, sort of campy adventure tales. He does uh, Time Bandits. He does Baron Munchausen. But he also does a a brilliant, brilliant sci-fi work, uh, dystopian sci-fi work in the middle of all of this, which I still think is his opus, uh, Brazil. But what I think is so distinct about this one is that it's the first movie in his entire career where he does not have a credit on the script, And he also does not feature any of the players in Monty Python in a role. Uh, And I think that that's very deliberate. I think that this is like, uh, I I think this is him venturing out of his comfort zone and trying to do something that in the hands of a different director would be a lot more kind of cut and dry, very sort of like uh, standard, almost like melodrama. And he infuses it with so much of his like vividness and his world building and energy that it's just like it it pops off the screen. I absolutely love it. One of the things I felt when I was watching this was that it's playing in genres that he hasn't necessarily explored before. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking specifically of like a sort of romantic melodrama, as you say, and also kind of like a rom-com, like that would, Mm -hmm. you know, become more common in the 90s. And he's still also playing in this sort of like fantastical space that's very comfortable for him. But what I love about this movie in particular is that in Brazil, he uses fantasy as an incisive tool to comment on the absurdity of 
bureaucracy and like the alienation that we experience from, you know, a a post-industrial world. And in his other films, adjacent and around Brazil, he is using fantasy as a mode of comedy and as a mode of, you know, sort of like adventure storytelling, very much like he did with Monty Python. Mm -hmm. And in this movie, he's kind of doing both. Like he is using fantasy both as a weapon to poke at and call attention to the problems of our society that we sort of take as banal and quotidian. And he's also using fantasy as a salve. Like there are moments in the film, there's a Grand Central Station um, sequence, which we can talk about in a minute, but this sequence in particular just like came at such a perfect moment in the film when I was like, Yes, I want them all to be fucking in tuxedos doing a waltz, like with like chandeliers everywhere. Like he mm-hmm. he uses fantasy in this in this movie to to do both, to be to make incisive commentary and also to sort of sweep you off your feet and really comfort you and swaddle you in the loveliness that he's uh curating in this movie. That uh, that Grand Central Station waltz is like a really, really magical, beautiful moment. And uh, funny enough is I think one of the like few elements of the movie that Gilliam can take sole credit for. There was a, a different, I think, uh, sequence written in the script and Gilliam envisioned this himself and I think was reluctant to do it until he was like kind of urged by the by the crew and by the cast. And they thought, no, that actually that's perfect. Like, let's let's make that happen. Um, and it, and it really is. It's it's so striking. At first, you think that you're almost imagining it, right? Like you kind of you see the hustle and bustle of the bodies, and we're we're seeing Robin Williams, we're seeing Amanda Plummer, kind of in in the foreground, and you start seeing people coupled up and kind of spinning and twirling behind them, and you think it's an illusion. You think it's like you know something that you weren't supposed to see, or maybe just like a uh, an extra doing something off, and then it starts to populate the the. the foreground itself and and then the entire frame and then we pull out and see like no this is you know in quotes really happening and i just love it i I think that part's really magical i love all the stuff with the red knight too as soon as you see the red knight show up and like the fire coming out of like the horse's nostrils and from like his like helmet you know that this is like a terry gilliam creation it looks so distinct and so vivid and again it's one of those things that at first it's a sleight of hand. You you see it as maybe like a, a representation of some sort of like psychosis. And then all of a sudden, you know, by the end of it, you actually come to realize that it's sort of a, a metaphorical kind of like figure of grief, right? And of like yes. trauma. Um, and it's, it, I, I just love everything he's doing in that regard here. I, I think that he's, um, he's such a master with that kind of like fantasy element and the way he injects it into this movie. Uh, is is so masterful and could only, I think, come at this point in his career after he's already experimented in both modes. Hi. Welcome back. How are you feeling? Have I died? Oh, no. <laughs> hey, oh, hey, easy. Easy, you want to get up? There you go. Hey, gravity works. Come on. Take it real slow. There you go. Take a few breaths, huh? There you are. Where am I? It's my domicile. It's my humble abode. Mikasa, Isukasa. 
I knew it. I knew it last night. I did too. I did. Don't look me. Don't. He's the one. Can you keep a secret? No. Good. Because you know what the little people told me? The little people? Oh, you know. They said, you're the one. You know who I am? I'm drawing a blank. Well, take a guess. Let him guess, hmm? Uh, uh, you know, I don't know, you seem to be uh, some kind of vigilante. Well, that happens along the way, of course. But here's a clue. Hood ornament. No. I'm a knight on a special quest. And I need help. It's funny, you know, I was reading and also watching uh the the Ebert and Roper episode where they review this and then reading oh Roger Ebert's review afterward too. I don't think Ebert's a big fan of Terry Gilliam. Uh and I think that he doesn't quite uh sort of his his excesses don't resonate with him and i think in this movie especially one of the things that i think i found so endearing about it the fact that it was sort of this mishmash of genres and taking something that feels much more naturalistic and imbuing it with all of these kind of fantastical elements just really didn't work for him he gave it like a like a two out of four like like a nice like 50 percent and so that there's like a lot of redeeming qualities to it but that like overall it's just too much and I think the too muchness of it is what makes it so special, frankly. I totally agree. I think, again, were this handled by a different director, um, one, Jeff Bridges would feel really strange cast in this role. <laughs> because, yes. like, there's a lot of... Um, you, you do have to lean into a lot of the fantasy. And he's playing the straight man against Robin Williams, of course, which is always the case when you're playing against Williams, but but he also has to have some comedic moments of of his own, and um, and has to be a leading man, but also has to kind of like, you know, do some adventure and swashbuggling. There's like a lot that isn't typical for Bridges mm-hmm. in in a lot of his roles in this movie, and I I just found that the tone he was able to strike and whatever Gilliam saw in him, it really worked because there is so much fantasy and yes, some excess, but I will just say as an aside, I think the Grand Central Station sequence is a really great example of the ways in which it's actually kind of subtle excess and it's mm-hmm. it's woven into the diegesis of the film beautifully um, and feels really organic. But Jeff Bridges kind of grounds the story in a lot of real world implications, um, despite the fact that you would think that if anyone would, it would be um, Robin Williams's character, who is an unhoused person. It it grounds the the sort of adventure and fantasy of the story not just into the real world, but also into the implications of just like human fallout Mm -hmm. um which i think gilliam handles really beautifully i think bridges does such a a good job here because of the the roles that he had played previously and also some of the roles that he would play later on in his career um he he has that kind of like 
uh sort of like intimidating masculine kind of like natural sex appeal to him you know like his his character after the sort of like introduction of this movie like when he's uh, you know, kind of adrift and and a drunk and and sad and and you know, kind of in his sort of like grief and guilt around uh, this thing that he he feels responsible for when he was like a shock jock. Reminded me a little bit of the same kind of mode he's playing in in Cutter's Way. I thought the exact same thing, and even like, when he's in his like sort of pompous phase too, mm-hmm. when he's really successful, there's an element of his character in Cutter there as well yeah it just like it it feels like uh you know just sort of a a guy who gets by and just sort of coasts on his good looks and charisma and takes advantage of women and is kind of like a philanderer and and sort of just like you know uh ambitious ambitionless and and adrift uh but there are elements later on that to me feel like some of the earliest kind of indications of that sort of zany kookier kind of quality that like he would he would operate in when he plays the dude um and i think it's so essential to the to the movie for him to be able to operate and kind of oscillate between those two things pretty seamlessly because and and it's not ever i think like articulated and touched upon in the movie outside of you know, some of the subtext and some of like the visions he experiences, but you get the sense in the film uh, that, that Gilliam and, and probably, you know, to a, a greater extent, even like uh, Richard Lagrevenese, the, the screenwriter are showing us that Jack is a person who fundamentally is sort of identical to Perry, save for the nature of their circumstances and like, they're just like sheer luck right like he has moments where he kind of sort of falls into uh his suicidal tendencies his like psychosis and his grief and things that like if he didn't have just like that that little bit of safety net in in the uh form of mercedes rules character that he would be in probably the exact same position as perry yes i'm so glad you brought this up It is very purposeful that they spend so much of the movie together and oftentimes are doing kind of the exact same thing, Mm -hmm. Um, but it lands very differently from each character, Um, purposefully so. Like, there's a moment when they're in Central Park and Perry strips down naked and is, like, hollering at the moon and talking about how, like isn't this great? Like, this is why dogs do this because it feels so good. Like you, you just got to get naked. And like, he's, you know, sort of yammering. And Jack is getting increasingly frustrated with him and basically storms off and starts muttering to himself. And there's a beautiful moment when Perry turns to him and says, who are you talking to? And it's this like mirror (laughs) of like Jack oftentimes has bouts of mania in this film and is talking to no one and is despondent or, you know, um, paranoid or whatever it may be. And, and yeah, like Perry is often the one to call him out and he's not even calling him out. He's just sort of innocently like asking the question and it's beautiful writing because it really does show you that like, 
but for a few, you know, small decisions, they are ostensibly the same. And what is even more incisive about that comparison is that Perry doesn't actually try to run from the consequences of his actions. He runs from from grief and trauma that he is terrorized by. But Jack's character, several times throughout the film, tries to go and do a thing or is like, you know, on a high again and is then confronted with the consequences of his own actions. He has all these moments where he tries to escape and he's not successful. Um, Whereas Perry actually, I think, very purposefully is the more noble of the two of them. Mm -hmm. Um, There's, I don't think it's a mistake that he is a knight in this movie. I love, love, love the uh, art direction and the production design in this movie. And it's always something, you know, that is, uh, I I think, a a kind of staple of Terry Gilliam's work is his sets and environments are so, so busy. And he doesn't shy away from, like, the dirtiness and, like, the kind of ickiness of places. Like, he likes dirt and grime like i think even you know we we watched a little bit of time bandits together one time and you you mentioned you're like every environment every character in this movie like is dirty they like every every sort of surface has like grime or like mold on it and like people are sweaty and covered in mud and he does the same thing in this movie you know um but but does a really effective thing i think where he has this just kind of like vividness and and detail in all of these scenes in the homeless encampments um, and in, to a lesser extent, like uh, Mercedes Rule's apartment and the video store and all these places that are kind of seen as maybe like a more uh, everyday sort of environment within New York City. And he juxtaposes that with like this really kind of like brutalist sparseness of all of the kind of like tall buildings and the uh sort of when when bridges is in his kind of like riches sort of situation you know like when he uh is a shock jock like the the studio he's in is just like immaculate to the point of being like kind of creepily austere it almost sort of looks like a i don't know like a morgue or something um and I, I think it's just really effective. It's beautiful. It's vividly rendered. And it just like makes all this room for imagination in there too. I just think so distinctly of uh, when Robin Williams, when Perry, you know, pulls out his sword and it's like the the bumper, the hood ornament of like a, a Ford F-150 or something like that. I wrote down at one point that Gilliam does an excellent job of shooting New York City to make it look like a medieval kingdom Mm -hmm. (laughs) like the architecture that he chooses is is incredibly purposeful there's you know he has these sort of like ornate gray gates that they're in front of at one point the billionaire's house looks exactly like a castle the billionaire's (laughs) house is a fucking castle when they're shooting in and around central park it sort of feels like you know sherwood forest or some shit like it's um it's it's just it so works and he's very comfortable obviously like operating in that in that time period and he does such a beautiful job transforming 
you know, the sort of hellscape of modern city living in in one of the biggest metropolises in our world into something that feels like you can have like a knight's tale take place in it. One of the things we haven't remarked upon yet is that, you know, for uh, as distinct sort of a, a pivot in terms of uh, narrative and style as this movie is for Terry Gilliam, it also happens to be the second of his features that is about the pursuit of the Holy Grail. Yes. <laughs> you know, um, so like he, he obviously- That was not like, lost on me. <laughs> like the second Robin Williams character says that, I was like, here we go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like, you know, if there's, if you can't tell already from the camera work and, and you know, sort of the, the art direction that this is a Terry Gilliam movie, as soon as the Arthurian legend stuff starts coming into it, you're like, oh, we are, we are very firmly in a Terry Gilliam movie. But again, operating in, in a mode that like in, in the hands of a lesser director or, or a, a, a person who is more kind of a journeyman and less of a stylist, it would not be the same kind of movie. It would be, it would be rendered very, very differently. And I think he's like giving a nod to his, to the thing that made him famous, but he's Mm -hmm. also kind of like eschewing the responsibility we might cast upon him to deliver on that. Like he's, you know, winking at it, but he's also kind of like, yeah, like I'm, I'm not really going to give you a Holy Grail story. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is a big time red herring in the movie. Like they do, they talk about it and then they do sort of like tack on that ending where, uh, Jeff Bridges does go and pursue the Grail from the billionaire's mansion, uh, but I, you know, the the movie could could have done it. It could have not done it, and I feel like it would have been, uh, you know, the the same story. There's a very you know sort of distinct reason why it happens in terms of kind of the themes and and the narrative uh, of the movie as a whole. But uh, yeah, it it definitely feels like it's there just as like kind of a wink and a nod, and more of like something that we can latch on to for familiarity in what is otherwise like a very distinctly different kind of uh, kind of Gilliam movie. I think it's perfect that it's actually entirely like inconsequential whether or not he gets the grail because it's yeah. not about getting the fucking grail. It's actually about his commitment to Perry. So mm-hmm. like it doesn't, it, it to me it's like, it's this, brilliant sort of inversion of this tale that he, you know, made this incredible comedic adventure about um, that made him famous. And it's all about the pursuit of this thing, this artifact. And in this movie, the artifact doesn't matter. Like he gets it and, and it's totally like feckless. Like it's just sort of like womp womp, but it's not about that. It's not about the artifact it is about the act mm-hmm. the act of jack abandoning his pretenses to demonstrate his love and his devotion for this man i think it's a really nice evolution of gilliam as a filmmaker to sort of look back on this thing that made him famous with reverence but to also say like this film isn't about that and I'm going to yeah. put it here and it's going to be a nice little wink, but the grail itself is going to have no material import. It's actually just going to signify the bond of these two men. Yeah. It, I mean, it's important. I think that like when he finally goes to to pursue and, and collect the grail from the the mansion that it's revealed that it's like a, a 
participation trophy from like the billionaires you know time in like uh grade school or something from like 1935 yes uh, it's 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 meaningless right it's just like a hollow trophy but it, it the the import that it's given because of the the connection that it it represents is is crucial and fundamental mm-hmm. god what a beautiful night jack hey, i think it's time to go now Running around here during the day is one thing, but at night we could be killed by a wide variety of people. That's stupid, Jack. I mean, this park is mine just as much as it is theirs. I mean, do you think it's fair that they can keep us out? Because it's just to make us think that we might get killed or something? Yes, I think it's very fair. Well, I don't. What are you doing? I'm cloud busting, Jack. You ever done it? You lie on your back and you concentrate on the clouds and you break them apart with your mind. It's you wild. No, but you have to be nude, though, Jack. Because you can't, you can't do diffuse this. the psychic energy. This is New York. No one's allowed to be naked in the field in New York. It's too Midwestern. Well, come, come on, on, Jack. It's wild. It's, it's really freeing. What? I mean, the air on your body, your nipples are hard, little guy dangling in the wind. Hey, hey, come on. Oh, come on, Jack. What are You're you pissing afraid? me no. off. Hey. And we're bare ass naked hey. in the middle of it. I'm not yes. doing this. This is nuts. Oh, I'm come leaving. On, Jack, free I mean yourself. It. Free yourself. I'm you know leaving. why dogs do this? Yo, because it feels good, Jack. I'm not doing oh. that. Oh. Yes, yo. Out. Come on, Jack. Get back to your roots. Oh, 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 oh. The man on. talks to invisible people. He sees invisible horses. And he's lying naked in the middle of Central Park. I should be surprised. I'm not surprised. I'm out of my fucking mind to even be here. Who are you talking to, Jack? I'm talking to the little people. Are they here? We should talk a little bit about Robin Williams in this movie too. I mean, as as good as he ever has been, you know, the film feels like the the, the role of Perry feels very distinctly written for Robin Williams. Yes. Um, and I, you know, he does a great job doing that kind of like loopy, zany kind of stuff, like the loud and bombastic kind of elements of perry when he's more animated and more expressive and kind of more in his fantasy about being a knight but it's i mean like it always is with robin williams you know like it's actually like the quiet parts when he really gets to like flex and when he really shows just like how formidable a performer he is was watching an interview with jeff bridges from not long ago i think like 2014 2015 uh, and they were talking about the fisher king and bridges uh even mentions as much you know that he had this expectation of Williams when he came on set as this like, you know, kind of zany comedy guy, you know, that he was going to be like playing off of and working against this guy who was just like at 11 all the time. And he said that like from the first time they called action in a scene together, he realized that his comedy and his sort of zaniness is like just one tool in the kit bag. And that he's like a really generous performer and that it's the it's the quiet stuff and like the actual like acting, you know, like like the just like the the, the performance stuff that he just like has such a command over and he gets to use it a couple of times in this movie to like profoundly moving effect. The first of which I think is that that walk home after the date with Amanda Plummer Um you know kind of sweepingly romantic and i he just he has so many moments like that in this movie um where he gets to do what he's i think known for and what we think he does best but then the stuff that actually like really makes him like one of the best performers of of his generation yeah just thinking about him makes my heart break um and watching him in this movie was just like such a joyous experience but also just 
just made me really sad. Um, like actor doesn't even feel like a, a loaded enough term for him because he's doing so much more than acting. He's, um, you know, he's, he's telling a story with his face, with his body, but he's also adding to this element of fantasy that Gilliam already brings to the story. And I don't really think there's anyone else who could do that the way that Williams does. And that's like bigger than acting. That's like, that's like cosmic shit. That's just like in his DNA, you know, <laughs> that like mm -hmm. uh, we just happen to be lucky enough to, to see on screen briefly. The moment you're talking about with Amanda Plummer's character, Lydia, Oh, I'm going to get emotional thinking about it. Um, is such a, it's such a great moment for both of them. Mm -hmm. And then it's, um, it's concluded by a pretty extensive sequence of terror. But prior to that, they're finishing their date. And it's a beautiful exchange where Amanda Plummer's character is narrating to Perry what she believes is gonna happen. You don't have to say that. I never say anything I have to. No, I mean, you don't have to say nice things to me. It's a little old fashioned considering what we're about to do. What are we about to do? You're walking me home. Mm -hmm. I think you're a little attracted to me. Yeah. And You'll probably want to come upstairs for some coffee. I don't drink coffee. And we'll probably have a drink and talk and get to know each other a little bit better, get comfortable. And then you'll, you'll sleep over. And in the morning, you'll awake and you'll be distant. And you won't be able to stay for breakfast. Maybe just a cup of coffee. I don't drink coffee. And then we'll exchange phone numbers and you'll leave and never call. And I'll go to work and I'll feel so good for the first hour and then ever so slowly I'll turn into a piece of dirt. I don't know why I'm putting myself through this. Night. Wait, just, hey, sorry. Wait, one minute. Hey, excuse me. Please wait, wait. No, listen, I'm not feeling very well. Oh, no wonder. We just met, made love, and broke up all in the space of 30 seconds. And I don't remember having the first kiss, which I think is the best part. Listen, it was so very special to meet you. And it was and for me, too. But I think it's time you should shut up now. Shut up. Please. I have a confession I have to make to you. I'm in love with you. I know that you come out from work at noon every day and you fight your way out that door and then you get pushed back in and three seconds later you come back out again. And I, I walk with you to lunch and I know if it's a good day if you stop and get that romance novel at that bookstore. I know sometimes you feel a little uncoordinated and you don't feel as wonderful as everybody else and feeling as alone and separate as you feel you are and I love you. 
I love you. <laughs> and I think you're the greatest thing since Spice Racks. And I've been knocked out several times. If I could just have that first kiss, and I won't, I won't be distant. I'll come back in the morning, and I'll call you if you let me. But I still don't drink coffee. I was just like, just tears streaming down my face watching this moment. Mm -hmm. Again, if we're in sort of the genre of a rom-com, this moment is like so cheesy. And so like when the Matthew McConaughey character says to Kate Hudson, oh, what, whatever it is, right? <laughs> like, and this is not that at all. It is like the two of them grappling with very real fears and experiences in life that have influenced their worldview and their perspective on other human beings and how they trust others. It's like this swirl of grief and fear and anxiety and also just like complete abandonment of, you know, uh, rational thought and also just total adoration of a person and noticing all the things about someone that makes them special. Like, I just felt like a whole relationship was contained in that exchange or, or rather the whole sort of emotional spectrum of a relationship was contained in that exchange. It's really beautiful. If you can't tell already, like I fucking love this movie <laughs> and I could talk about it ad nauseum. I mean, it's just a beautiful moment in the movie. And again, one of those moments where Williams as a performer and the movie itself just abandons all pretense. It becomes like incredibly earnest and it feels earned. It feels like very, yes. it feels very earned. And like you said, you know, this is the moment in the rom-com that happens like at the, at like the 11th hour, right? Like this is like, this is like the the final act and like the like, running to stop her from getting on the plane or like, you know, going to catch her before she like moves to a different town or whatever. Uh, but it's like right in the middle of the movie. Um, and it, and it just feels so earned in this moment. Um, and as, as you already mentioned, this scene transitions seamlessly. Like we, we haven't talked yet, like distinctly yet about how good this movie is at managing its, its sort of disparate tones, but it goes from this very kind of like screwball-y, funny uh, dinner sequence of like these like little vignettes. It's very funny. I loved to it. This, to this very romantic kind of uh, sequence and this, you know, beautiful kind of soliloquy from Robin Williams back to this fantasy, but this fantasy now coupled with like this narrative about grief and trauma and loss there as well. Williams, again, just like on a dime, turns it and makes it so perfect. He's terrified. And he's also just like so heartbroken. You know, he's like looking down this vision of the Red Knight that he's been, you know, dealing with and and up to this point been like kind of bravely facing and pursuing and trying to fight. And when he sees him in this moment when he's vulnerable and weak and feeling like fulfilled in this other woman, he just like drops to his knees and like begs the knight, like, let me just have this one thing. Like, this is, this is a good thing. Let me have it. Uh, oh man. Like I, like <laughs> it's hard not to get like choked up thinking about it. You know, I had, I had a moment watching that particular sequence when things then go downhill for Perry's character. Um, and he ends up getting badly beaten by two fucking dipshits. And 
I had, you know, this moment of thinking to myself, like, of course, Perry is homeless. Like, of course he is. He uh, saw the love of his life um, blown to pieces in front of him and his brain, her brains splattered Mm-hmm. all across his face and then it's a really he, gruesome sequence by the way it's I, a gruesome sequence i i was convinced up until this point that we would see maybe flashes of it but that we weren't going to see the actual sort of like catastrophic nature of it and when it happens and you kind of like i mean the the, the blood and like the viscera like it's shocking when you see it in this movie like up to this point you think it, it might not go there and then it does uh, it's really, it's really affecting. It's, it's, it's very. And it just like made all the more clear for me. Like, yeah, like that would fuck a person up. No wonder he like couldn't speak after that. Hold down a job, fucking pay rent, whatever it is. Like that would ruin a person. Mm-hmm. And And this movie, you know, is about a lot of things, but I also think it is about this. Like, it's about the way in which modern society antagonizes people in so many different ways. Um, and, And how many of those people are abandoned altogether by Mm -hmm. the very society that does the antagonizing and puts them in a place of vulnerability to begin with. This is a story that we on the left know very well, but it is not one that makes its way into fucking rom-coms or, you know, um, swashbuckling adventure tales in the late eighties, early nineties. It doesn't make it into movies, period. It doesn't make it into movies, period. Yeah. But I think very often in this film, what Gilliam reminds us is that like under the scriptures of capitalism, without naming it, um, we have, you know, the we are coerced into individualistic pursuit. Mm-hmm. And when we are thrust from the scriptures of that that system of organization, the only way we survive is with other people. If we're on the topic right now of the people, the human connections that save these people who are, you know, kind of at like the the very sort of bottom of the barrel and and who are, uh, you know, becoming unmoored and and uh, ripped from the fabric of society, we should talk about what I think might be even for as great as Bridges and Williams are in the film, maybe the best performance in the entire thing. Best which performance, is, I know who you're going to say. Which is Mercedes Rule. Um, yes. As, as Jack's, uh, like, sometimes girlfriend and and roommate. Uh, Oscar winner for the film. I did not know that she had, had won the Oscar for this, for uh, supporting actress until uh, doing some research. Profoundly deserved. I, you know, like I, she again, like you know, Bridges and Williams here are doing probably like career best work, and still she is stealing every single scene from them in all the moments that she uh, is in the movie and in the moments when uh, they're not even there. One of my favorite scenes uh, is when Amanda Plummer's character comes to her apartment to get her nails done, uh, so she can kind of like you know coerce her into going to dinner with the boys and and set up this sort of impromptu date with with Perry uh and their interaction together 
in the midst of this movie that is very much, I think, a lot about like camaraderie and like the bonding of two male figures uh, spares a moment to find this way that like women connect in a very distinct way that feels very honest too. I think some people are meant to be alone. I think you're getting a little too complicated. What, in your opinion, is the actual problem? I don't make an impression on people. At office parties, I rearrange the, the hors d'oeuvres while people are eating them so, th so that the, the platters will remain full. I never start any of the conversations because I just don't know. I don't know where the, to make it end to go. Listen, listen, listen. You gotta be a little easier on yourself, doll. A conversation has a life of its own, you know? You have to have some faith in that fact. I mean, look at us. We're having a very lovely conversation. I'm paying you. Oh, look, will you stop it? I'm not like that. I don't do people favors. If I talk to you, it's because I want to talk to you. All right, you're not a supermodel. We can't all be Jerry Hall. What a boring world it would be if we were all Jerry Hall. Mm. You do the best you can with what you got. Mm. Yeah, you're not so invisible. Hey, you want a personality? Try this on for size. You can be a real bitch. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I, I just think she's phenomenal. She just does such a wonderful job in this movie. She is fucking breathtaking. I remarked to you before we started recording that I was looking up how old she was in this film and she's 43 mm -hmm. uh, playing Anne. And I was just so pleased that Gilliam cast her in this character um, as this character who's not like a spinster. She's like yeah. a hottie with a body. Mm -hmm. She's very much, you know, meant to be this sort of like woman who is, capable and tough and sexy and desired, but also has had her share of dating troubles and, um, and is, you know, an incredible caretaker of, of Jack. Um, she just like brings so much more to this character than I think someone who is half her age would have. And also, the other thing that I mentioned to you that I love about this casting is that Mercedes is a very accomplished stage actor and um, she's just navigating the complexities of this role so seamlessly. And she is, you know, committed and intense and I'll use this word again, tactile, but she is also like, quiet and subtle and um and just like really emotive in small ways that I think a lot of people who you know find purchase on stage have a harder time doing um behind the camera and there's a scene in particular towards the end of the film when Jack is uh he's like feeling really good because he helped mm -hmm. his buddy get together with the woman he has a crush on and he's like okay I'm like 
back. I'm going to call my agent. And she's like, oh my gosh, that's so exciting. Like maybe we could get a bigger place, yada, yada, yada. And basically he's like, look, I think we got to slow down. And she has so many great lines in this, in this breakup scene, but she Mm -hmm. says to him, no, 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 you don't get to be nice to me. Cause he's trying to comfort her in a moment of, mm-hmm. of her being upset. And she's like, you don't get to be nice to me so that you get to walk out of here feeling good about yourself. If you're going to break up with me, do it now. Don't make it some long drawn out hurt that takes months. It's just like, it's so good. And she's so fucking good. And like every yeah. word out of her mouth is like, it's just so visceral. And I just like, Again, it could be something that in another movie is totally trite, um, but it felt lived in and I recognized so much of their exchange. Like, yeah, I, she, I'm speechless. I don't know what to say about her except for that, like, she's incredible and she's smoking hot and she's also just like strong and fragile and vulnerable and also mm-hmm just a fucking force. She's incredible in this film. She, I mean, like I said, you know, shows up, uh, these two other like veteran performers who of, uh, you know, Oscar caliber and just like runs away with the show. Most of the time that confrontation scene at the end, perfect. Uh, the scene I mentioned before with her and Amanda Plummer connecting perfect. And just so many like little, moments in the movie like her exchanges when she's first starting to kind of warm to perry uh when he's like over at the apartment and <laughs> she's like he, he he wants to talk to me like he wants to have a conversation he's like so talk to him he doesn't bite and perry is like you're such an accomplished woman you have your own business and you're beautiful like i can't believe someone has that childbearing body of yours <laughs> he says to her yeah um and you know it's just it's uh she plays all those scenes so well and she's just yeah she's just an, an, it's an incredible performance and uh yeah i mean we don't have much else to say on it besides just like she she wins uh all the accolades uh for this one from, from she, wins. she wins she yeah. wins period like she's i <laughs> just again brilliant casting so perfect we should also talk a little bit about the way that this film handles homelessness. Uh, It's a touchy subject and it's one that is treated with very, very little empathy by Hollywood, by media, and especially in 1991 America, you know, at the end of the Reagan and the Bush years, uh, this film feels like an incredibly progressive work in terms of the level of empathy that it's wielding in showcasing homelessness and the kinds of people uh, who find themselves on the streets. There are any number of different uh, moments that we can talk about. I already alluded to one that I think I would like to start with, um, which is when they're in Grand Central Station, for a brief moment before they experience this waltz, uh, Tom Waits makes a terrific cameo. Always lovely to see Tom Waits show up in a movie. I forget sometimes like how good an actor Tom Waits is because of how accomplished he is as a musician. Yep. Um but then you like see him like just, you know, like crush two minutes of screen time like this. And he's just like pitch perfect in it. Uh, and he is talking with Jack, with Jeff Bridges about sort of his like 
invisibleness in society, but also the ways in which he acts as an arbiter of like uh, societal control for people who are in their normal day-to-day lives. Asshole. Didn't even look at you. Well, he's paying so we don't have to look. See, guy goes to work every day, eight hours a day, seven days a week. He gets his nuts so tight in a vice that he starts questioning the very fabric of his existence. Then one day, about quitting time, boss calls him into the office and says, hey, Bob, why don't you come on in here and kiss my ass for me, will you? Well, he says, hell with it. I don't care what happens. I just want to see the expression on his face as I jam this pair of scissors into his arm. Then he thinks of me. He said, wait a minute. I got both my arms, I got both my legs. At least I'm not begging for a living. And sure enough, Bob's going to put those scissors down and pucker right up. You see, I'm what you call kind of a moral traffic light, really. I'm like saying red. Go no further. And it's such like an incisive and specific uh, point of dialogue there. And I, I just love it so much because it, it is, you know, the, the honest truth of that thing, right? That like as a society, so much of the reason that we tolerate homelessness and why homelessness even exists is because of uh, a level of precarity that has to exist in order for us to continue this sort of cycle of exploitation in our day-to-days. And I, yeah, I just, I just think it's brilliant writing. I think it's a brilliant little like minor cameo performance here and the ways in which he just like so succinctly and sharply navigates that idea that like the only reason people just keep doing what they're doing and, and don't ever uh, falter from this, this line of day in day out misery is because they could wind up like me yeah it's it's like three books worth of like socialist or marxist theory like distilled (laughs) into like a 30 second exchange between a homeless man and jeff bridges character Mm -hmm. and it's fucking incredible and every single thing out of tom waits's mouth is delivered perfectly every sort of like impulse of anti-establishment you know sort of violence we may have like is absolutely mitigated the second we think about the precarity that awaits us if we don't fucking pucker up Mm -hmm. and like that idea i think is a, a little bit more understood kind of tangibly by more regular people than just you know sort of people that exist on the political fringes 30 fucking years ago but it's delivered you know so candidly so concisely and so pointedly and it's this reminder that the government designed poverty on purpose mm-hmm. and like we everything about our society exists to make us think that that is not the case, (laughs) that it's like that person's fault or like 
you know, this, that, and the other circumstance, that it is not explicitly and expressly by design so that someone like this character that Tom Waits is playing can be a cautionary tale for us. When I walk down the street and I am hating my fucking job, I will continue to go and kiss ass because I know that if I don't, I will die. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's just another beautiful moment where, again, the writing and the acting and the setting of the film does so much work that, like, all of this can be contained in in a, a mirror, you know, few moments of exchange that don't ever feel, like, scripted either. Like, I don't feel like it's a, you know, it's like a hammy performance. The dialogue feels real, um, mm -hmm. despite it doing a ton of work. And these are those moments, you know, like those those kind of more naturalistic moments of the movie where, you know, Gilliam kind of puts away a little bit of the fantasy uh, to, to show us, you know, the, the, the reality of the situation. Waits has another line at the beginning of, of his scene uh, where, you know, people are, are dropping coins and some change in his coffee cup. And one guy just sort of like drops some change sort of in his general direction. And Bridges picks up the coin and puts it in the cup for him. And he says, what an asshole. He didn't even look at you. And Wade says, yeah, well, he's he's paying so he don't have to look. And we we see this more than once in the movie, the way that uh, Gilliam just like visually navigates this idea of invisibility for these characters. The very first time we see Perry kind of go into his psychosis and see the Red Knight he kind of has this panic attack and like screaming fit on the sidewalk on the side of a busy street. And the way that both he and Bridges play this is, is pitch perfect where Bridges kind of reacts in a way where he's almost trying to calm him down and quiet him. And he's nervously looking around, you know, as if like, Oh, we're causing a scene. But then we go into Bridges perspective, this point of view, and we see street level, the activity of all these people walking by and not a single person glances over to look. No one stops to see, and it's just like a—it's like it's like a split second, you know, maybe like like a, a second and a half of of total runtime. And it's one of the most uh, profound moments I think in the film as it pertains to the commentaries it's making about houselessness, where you realize just like how removed and how cynical people are, like like this sort of like distance that people have kind of uh, adopted in order to just go about their days and not have to think about that sort of like layer of our society that exists that's always there in our face. Yeah, it's that individualism that is coerced on us um, so that we can not band together and overthrow the structures of power, right? Like <laughs> it's it, it's really easy for me having the you know, political perspective that I do to read all of this in Gilliam's work, but we know that that is what Gilliam is saying. I mean, mm -hmm. Brazil was made in 1981, I think. And uh, 80, 85, I think, but yeah. Okay, 85, and is one of the most prescient and incisive commentaries on like the late stages of capitalism and like living in a, a post industrialized world that I think has ever been made. <laughs> um, despite being like also hilarious, right? Um, on this matter of invisibility, the last thing I'll say on that is the two men that 
tried to beat Jeff Bridges' character up in the beginning when Perry saved him mm-hmm. are the two men that come back and beat Perry um, after he's had this date with uh, Lydia and he's running away from this night that is that is terrorizing him. And they don't say anything. They just show up and they say, we're tired of having to look at you people. Yeah. I mean, like, that's it. Like, th- that's everything, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, it's it's the two different sympathies that people have. It's either, uh, you know, this adopted ignorance where it's like, I don't want to look at that thing. Or it's this, which is uh, just blind contempt for these disdain. people. Disdain. Just mm-hmm. disdain. And and they even say, you know, like they're like, they say like, we're tired of looking at you. And, and I, I can't remember the line specifically, but they do more or less say something like, the people across the street, you know, like we, we pay good money to, to live here and work here and like follow the rules and we shouldn't have to stare at you. We shouldn't have, we shouldn't have to deal with this, with, with looking over at this filth. That's what they say to um, Jack when, Mm -hmm. when he's about to kill himself and they confront him. They're basically like, we pay good money to be here. Like you're trash. We yeah. need to dispose of you. Um, and living in San Francisco, like we are not uh, strangers to that sympathy. That sympathy is is echoed by any number of people in our government, in our society, like every sort of errant dipshit, like 25-year-old tech worker who makes, you know, half a million dollars a year and, and you know, has, has moved into an expensive neighborhood. And it's... It, it, we're looking at this 30 years on, you know, that sentiment is, is not one that has been erased from our society in any way whatsoever. In fact, it feels more pronounced now. Yes. And Gilliam shows us a third option, like a third posture that we can have um, toward these people that our society has abandoned. Um, And that is, we just get close to them. We get close to them and we listen and we talk and we um, move past the sort of like trained fear, contempt, whatever we may have and just treat them like we would any other human being. Um, And a really beautiful moment uh, when he shows us this, I mean, he shows us this several times. The first is with Perry himself, who is more human and, and forward and connected to Jack than I think anyone else around him has been outside of um, outside of Anne's character. And he shows us this several more times, but there is an exchange with a wonderful character played by Michael Jeter, who is fucking phenomenal in this movie. Mm-hmm. They end up taking him to a hospital and in the span again of like of 60 seconds michael jeter has you know a handful of lines that tell us so much not just about his character but about people like him and about again how person who has not done anything other than just exist in you know a, a hellscape of complexities and epidemics and exploitation and disease and whatever else and he's felt something about it and that's Mm -hmm. why he is where he is 
And like, it's just handled with so much empathy, not even sympathy, but just so much empathy, particularly for um, the many unhoused people. And we know this in San Francisco who became unhoused because of a massive death march that existed for nearly two decades between, you know, the late seventies and, and mid nineties on the gay population. And like, I, yeah, I just, I, I was so struck by that moment. And it was another example of Gilliam really like reminding us that these people aren't failures it's like a simple and obvious statement, but it's one that we as a society need to be reminded of constantly. And he's not heavy handed about it um, Mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. There are so many like brilliant moments like that when it comes to, you know, the, the Perry and and to the characters that kind of like populate his, his world and his existence. And yeah, it's just, it's just treated with uh, a word that we'll just keep saying with just, you know, empathy. And there's like a, a, a humanity there and, you know, I, I was watching actually a, an interview with Robin Williams on this, and um, the the interviewer asks him. You know, he says, uh, "This is kind of a scary subject. Have you ever, you know, been afraid of this kind of thing of this of this thing kind of happening in in your life, or have you ever like butted up against it?" And Williams says, you know, pretty point blank, he says it 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 has happened to people just like that, you know, like you something happens and then boom, a lot of people on the streets uh, in most cities now are former mental patients who either were let out because of a lack of funding or were just never put in in the first place. And I, I you know, just knowing, uh, and of course, like Robin Williams, you know, and and as as the performer that he is, and and playing this role must have some level of empathy and understanding but to hear him so succinctly put it and just say you know these people aren't uh lesser than these people aren't like some sort of like you know these they're not creatures who like exist at the periphery like by choice they're people who like aren't getting the help that they need um is is a really powerful thing and and just seeing it play out the way that it does in this movie and and in a movie like this that is being made at a time like 1991 was and the relationship that like we as a general populace had to to homelessness it's a really profound thing it's a really beautiful thing i i i just have to marvel at it really it's it's incredible that it exists it's a really contradictory stance that we have towards unhoused people um because on the one hand we're supposed to look at them and think oh fuck that could be me right mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, we're also supposed to tell ourselves, like, they did something wrong. I'm not that, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, it doesn't make logical sense. And that's because it's designed to be fucking corrosive and carceral and destructive and alienating. Um, But it is represented in, in the ways that, I should say it is revealed, (laughs) in the ways that Gilliam pushes through that kind of like veneer and actually spends time with these characters and gives them a few things to say on this topic of genres and Gilliam, you know, sort of pushing into new spaces and also working in 
um, in genres that he's comfortable with. I was also thinking a lot about musicals when I was watching this, this movie. Um, and it had me feeling like Gilliam was sort of, he's got this sort of feel and the score and the fancifulness and the fantasy of like this really glossy high production musical, but it's set amid the backdrop of this like really brutalizing metropolitan landscape Mm -hmm. and entrenched entirely in this sort of decaying abandoned population of America's poor. Um, And it felt to me like sort of like a reminder of like, that these images of fantasy are fantasy. They don't actually like reflect often our experiences. And sometimes they fall short of explaining the cruelties of our world. And sometimes they actually do a better job of explaining these cruelties when they are employed in a certain way. And so all this to say, I felt like was operating in this space of sort of like a classic studio system musical alongside these other genres we've talked about, but doing so in a way to kind of call attention to the fact that those things are very plasticine um, and they don't, they aren't reflective of a lot of things that are deeply human and deeply like entrenched in just existing in America, um, but that they can also be ways for us to explore the complexities of that landscape. Mm -hmm. That's what I have to say about that. (laughs) I think that's a good note to end on. Um, It's a remarkable movie. It's a really, really special movie. And uh, one that I don't think we'll ever get anything like, uh, again, courtesy of these brilliant performers, and of course, the great Terry Gilliam. Uh, Go watch it if you haven't. And if you've listened to us uh, talk about it for an hour and change before watching it, um, yeah, you know a little bit about it. Hopefully, we've enticed you to see it if you haven't already. Um, We'll end end with that for for the week. Uh, What an experience it was talking to you, Carly, over over a a video screen for the very first time on our podcast. I think we handled it pretty well. I think you did a great job handling me <laughs> on a screen, which is how most people experience me these days. Yeah, It's weird that this is the mediated form that uh, most people uh, experience everyone in these days uh, and have for the last yes. couple of years. We just, we're just getting a taste of it ourselves. Uh, what it's like to, to be a guest on hit factory. <laughs> uh, well, as always, everyone uh thank you so much for listening you can follow along with us at hit factory pod uh subscribe to the show patreon.com slash hit factory pod shout out to our capitalist overlords their names are linda and jesse k and we will catch you all the next time thanks everyone (laughs) 